listening to Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life. I'm Janine Strong, your podcast hostess. And today I'm having what I am quite sure will be another thought-provoking conversation with Dr. Stephanie Seneff. I contacted Dr. Seneff as I had a hunch that she had more information to share since we last spoke around COVID-19. I believe it was at the beginning of May. There's so much conflicting information, and Dr. Seneff is so brilliant at putting the pieces of the puzzle together. It's always an honor to have her share her knowledge and wisdom with us. Now, if you're interested in our previous conversations, just go to realjanine.com and click on archives, then check out episodes number 88, 61, and... (laughs) the episode between 52 and 53. It looks like I forgot to number it. So (laughs) anyway, it's right in there. (laughs) Okay, just a quick review of Stephanie's credentials. Dr. Seneff is a research scientist, a senior, excuse me, research scientist at the MIT Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab. She has degrees in biophysics, electrical engineering, and computer science from MIT. In recent years, she has focused her research interests on the impact of nutritional deficiencies and environmental toxins on human health, especially the role of one of the most toxic chemicals in the world. And I may say maybe the toxic, most toxic chemical in the world. I may be off there, but I'm starting to think it is the most toxic chemical. And that's glyphosate. That is the herbicide in Roundup Ready. She has been intensely researching connections Lately, between toxins and COVID-19, or the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And who knows? I don't even know if viruses exist anymore. But in her article that I just read on the Weston Price uh, website, which I'm going to put, it's an excellent article, I'm going to put it uh, on the podcast page. Uh, She talks about exosomes, which I'm going to want to get into. So I've been researching that lately. Okay. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome back. So great to be back. Thank you. Oh, you're quite welcome. So our last conversation was in early May. And um, maybe a little background on the subject for those who, you know, they haven't been following your work. um, And you can bring us up to speed now since May with all of the research you've been doing and the discoveries you've been making. Well, I I mean, I've been really uh, had a wonderful year this past year in my research and really piecing together pieces of the puzzle of human biology are flying together. It's so fascinating. And glyphosate has been, has helped me to do that because glyphosate, I believe it is just just disrupting several different enzymes in the body that are crucial for, for various metabolic processes that are getting disrupted. And what's happening is that the immune system in particular, the innate immune system is becoming defective as, as a consequence of chronic exposure to glyphosate. And so uh, what I'm seeing with COVID-19 is that the countries that use a lot of glyphosate are the same countries that are getting hit hard by by COVID-19. And I suspect that that's not accidental. I think Mm -hmm. that it's because people who have a weakened immune system can't fight the virus off. So Mm -hmm. when they get infected, they spread it. Whereas people who have a strong immune system, they just make it disappear. As soon as it comes into their lungs, they just make it disappear. So when you have a lot of people in a crowded city like New York City who are um, who have been poisoned by glyphosate for a long time, you have a very susceptible population and you can't control the virus. That's what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. And 
and the the thing that's caught my eye particularly um, is the idea of uh, of biofuels. Right, and that's what that article was about. Now, before you get into biofuels, Stephanie, how what what got you interested in studying glyphosate and in, in in the first place? Yeah, well, it was autism really that was. I was interested in both autism and heart disease, and um, at the same time, and I was researching both of them. And I actually, I, I figured in the case of autism in particular, I felt like it had to be something environmental that's causing the rise in autism because autism rates are going up exponentially. Mm-hmm. And so I was sort of systematically looking at various toxic chemicals as possible theories for the reasons for the rise. And, of course, vaccines is one thing that I actually do believe is a, is a factor mm-hmm. in autism. And I studied vaccines quite a bit for the first five years while I was looking for things and looking at other toxic chemicals, too, and toxic uh, metals like lead and mercury and aluminum. And, uh, <clears throat> and then, of course, things like um, fluoride and, and uh PCBs. I mean, there's just so many toxic chemicals. It's really depressing, actually, how yeah, many. it is. And it could be really just the collective, you know, whole of all of these chemicals, all of this. But um, I know because I, it's my understanding that, that, that when studies are done, they're just isolating one particular toxin and not how they're all synergistically working together. Absolutely. And that's one of the critical things about glyphosate. Glyphosate, of course, is the active ingredient in Roundup. It's pervasive in our environment. So it's huge with respect to the degree of exposure. And that's one thing. It has to be something that's very common that's Mm -hmm. causing this rise. You know, it's not just a few kids in a few places. Right. It's everywhere. And certainly glyphosate is everywhere. And that's number one. And number two is we think it's safe. And so people use it carelessly. People could be using it on their lawn while their child is playing and not think anything Mm. of it because we've been assured that it's so safe, you know. (laughs) And and then, of course, people who live near agriculture, if it's being sprayed in the field, you could be breathing it in. And actually, I think getting glyphosate exposure through the lungs is going to be particularly critical for something like Uh COVID-19 exposure through the lungs, because that's what's going to hit the lungs immune system and prevent the lungs from being able to clear the virus. Mm -hmm. Ah, okay. So I know you've made a connection between uh, pollution and glyphosate and increased incidence of of death, mortality uh, Mm -hmm. with the (laughs) COVID-19. Yes, there was a study uh, out of Harvard where they looked at the county level across the United States, and they found a strong correlation between the death rate uh, in the population from COVID-19 and um, air pollution in terms of the nanoparticles. So these were numbers you could get off the web, mm-hmm. and the um, <clears throat> that the counties that have a lot high nanoparticles as an indicator of high air pollution, and uh, and that correlated with uh, uh, death due to COVID. And there were several studies in Europe that also found correlations between air pollution and, and COVID. And p- people thought of it because of things like um, Lombardy in, in Italy, which is known to have very bad air and also had this big outbreak. And of course, New York City is a, you know, a very dense population with um, all these airplanes flying in and whatnot. So it's, uh, it's air quality is you know, pretty bad um, with the mm-hmm. COVID connection. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll just uh, recount a little story here about New York City because my husband and I had, he grew up outside of New York City. I think it was Flushing. And he wanted to move back to New York City. And we were in a fifth floor walk up. And I remember, I I remember, um, thank God we didn't live there for too long. But in the morning, like I'd have the window open for fresh air. And 
mm-hmm. there would be like black particles on my pillow in the morning. It was disgusting. Oh, wow. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what's interesting about the air pollution is that in the United States, there's a strong correlation. But I looked at air pollution across the world, and actually, you can get data on the nanoparticles for various countries. And I put together a plot that actually has pretty much almost an inverse correlation between air pollution and COVID-19. It doesn't make any sense. Like the countries that have the worst air pollution mm-hmm. have low death rates from COVID-19. Oh, and the ones, that's interesting. It's the exact opposite of what they saw in the United States. And, um, and this is countries, for example, in Africa, and particularly I looked at Nigeria, which has a terrible air, apparently. Um, 94, I think 94% of the population is exposed to air pollution with, at particle levels that are above the recommended maximum exposure level for WHO. That, I, I'm, that surprises me. I mean, they don't have a lot of industry, do they? Where, where do they I know. From? It's weird. It might be from coal. I'm not sure, like maybe oh. burning coal. But you see, it's a different kind of air pollution, and that's critical, I think. I think mm-hmm. it's not air pollution per se, but it's a particular kind of air pollution, and I'm suspecting that it's air pollution that's connected with biofuels. That's ah. what I'm seeing. The combination of air pollution and biofuels lands you on the Americas, North America, South America, and Europe in particular. And those are the countries that are being consistently unable to control COVID-19. Western Europe, United States, Brazil, Argentina, you know, these countries are big on glyphosate and big on biofuels. Oh, okay. So tell us about biofuel. Yeah, so what I'm suspecting is that glyphosate is getting into the biofuels and then it's getting released into the air. And whether it's actually coming from, you know, poorly tuned buses driving on biodiesel fuel, I mean, you know, you get these awful fumes coming out of diesel. And um, whether there's glyphosate in there, I suspect there is, you know, because it's coming from, they produce these fuels from crops. And so often what it, what it is, is they'll grow the wheat, they'll spray the wheat with, with glyphosate right before harvest. Mm-hmm. They harvest the wheat and then they take the stalks and they, you know, stick them on a barge, chip them down to New York City, run them through a process and produce biofuel. And that then um, is likely, I think, to be contaminated with glyphosate. Now, this is totally a theory. There's nobody who's proven that there is any, any glyphosate in any of these fuels. So that's still open for research. Okay. But there's the bioethanol that comes from GMO Roundup Ready corn. And uh, canola is a really uh, good source for, of biofuel. Some, some, crops, some canola crops are grown only for the fuel, not for anything oh. but biofuel. Mm-hmm. Canola is a GMO Roundup Ready crop. So, you know, you, you sort of think... There's going to be glyphosate in that fuel. And, and, of course, there's the soybeans. Like, for example, in Argentina, they produce biodiesel. They produce a lot of biodiesel for export in Argentina from GMO Roundup Ready soybeans. Mm-hmm. And uh, Europe imports a lot of that biodiesel from from uh, Argentina. Europe has a very large number of diesel-running cars, and they have a lot of interest in expanding their biodiesel. So they use a lot of biodiesel in Europe. In the United States, we don't use diesel so much on cars. I think only right. 2% of our cars are diesel, unlike Europe, which is more like 20%. So mm. Europe has this possibility of being exposed to biodiesel fuel contaminated with glyphosate. And I think the diesel will be especially bad with the glyphosate. It may be synergistic toxicity because there was a really interesting um, case study that I found on the web, a paper published, peer-reviewed paper on a case study of a guy who was a who had applied glyphosate based herbicide using an applicator that had gotten gummed up. It had gotten, it needed to be cleaned out. And he used um, diesel fuel as a solvent to clean his, this, this uh, applicator. Mm -hmm. And as he was cleaning the applicator, he started coughing up blood 
Oh my goodness. That fast? Yeah, oh. he was rushed to the hospital. It came on that quickly. He was rushed to the hospital diagnosed with uh, pulmonary uh, pulmonitis, which is basically injury to the lungs mm-hmm. from the combination of the diesel and wow. the glyphosate. Because I think the diesel is going to enable the glyphosate to get in. You know, it's going to be just like they, they add things, surfactants to um, the formula to mm-hmm. make it uh, much to make glyphosate much more toxic to the plants. But that probably also makes it much more toxic to the humans as well. You know, and so he maybe had the diesel as a as a surfactant to help him get the uh, capture the glyphosate and get it into his lungs so that it could be absorbed, which is really quite disturbing. But that's the same thing if you have diesel fuel with glyphosate in it because of the biodiesel. Then it could be that that's an especially toxic form of glyphosate. Another one that I'm concerned about is biogas. And that's very interesting because I'm finding some, I'm suspecting that that may be part of the problem with the uh, meat processing plants. You know, there's a lot of meat processing plants that have had huge outbreaks of COVID-19. Mm, right, and that's often, right, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole industry is working on, has been uh, aggressively pursuing the concept of using the waste from the meat processing and feeding it into these anaerobic digesters to make biogas. Okay. And then the biogas can be used to fuel the plant. And so that's also going to be contaminated with glyphosate because those animals eat tons of glyphosate in their in their uh, food, in their feed. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. oh, and so right. biogas is also something that comes out of New York City. New York City makes biogas out of its sewage system. They have this massive processing plant in um, on the creek that's uh, it's called Newtown Creek, which separates Brooklyn from Queens. Okay. Brooklyn and Queens were the epicenter of the epicenter when the epidemic first hit. You know, New York City got hit so hard, and in particular those two districts, and um, they have that massive uh, sewage processing plant that not only takes sewage but also other kinds of garbage and whatnot and spits out, uh, it has these huge anaerobic digesters and spits out uh, biogas that then is fed back to the community. It's sold, you know, for commercial use and for residential use. Okay. Okay. And so, and if you've got an old city with old pipes, you could have that biogas mm. leaking out of the pipes. And that would definitely, if there's glyphosate in the gas, there would be glyphosate in the air coming out of that, those pipes. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, somebody needs to invent a, uh, a meter of some sort, a little handheld meter that everyone can, can uh, purchase. It's not too expensive that where they could, that they can test for glyphosate. <laughs> That would really be awesome. And I actually know some people who have been trying to develop technology like that, ah. that you could even have something installed on your phone where you sort of zap, you know, you could have a product you're about to purchase and you zap it and you say, oh, no, no, that's got glyphosate. I'm not buying it, which would be such a game changer. Oh, if you could do that. yeah, that'd be that, great. That's a, really a dream come true. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, okay. So when you say uh, gas for residential, you're talking about like for heating. So people might uh, would be using yeah gas for heating right wow and there's also bio uh, home heating oil that's another one in uh, New York City New York City is the only city I know of that requires by law five percent bio in home heating oil if you heat your home with with heating oil five percent bio is required and you can get a tax break in all of New York State if you have more than five percent bio in your home heating oil. I've wondered about that with the nursing homes. I haven't been able to figure this out. I haven't been able to find any data on, you know, what what is the heating system for a nursing home? But if there's a nursing home that's using a bio home heating oil, they could be poisoning their population with glyphosate, I think. Wow. And you're also talking about, you know, I mean, we all strive to have, um, you know, our homes 
uh, uh, tight, right? Airtight. So we're not, mm-hmm. you know, cold air isn't coming in. So, so right. if there is glyphosate in, in the gas, in the fuel, then that's coming in through your vents in, into a, a closed uh, exactly. environment. Right. Wow. And of course the winter is interesting. As the winter is coming in, we're getting an uptick in, you know, we're getting increased COVID infections in all most of the states, right? In fact, that's actually very interesting to look at the pattern over time of the different different states. I was just investigating that again just this morning. And um, looking at those states that are, there are several states that sort of didn't really have any problem until recently. And now all of a sudden they've got massive infection. Okay. And when you look at those states, they turn out to be, many of them turn out to be agricultural states that have very uh, low density population. Okay. Uh, you know, North Dakota, South Dakota, Idaho, ne- ne- uh, Nebraska, these states are all pretty big agricultural states with low population density. So I think the population density is definitely a factor. And I've looked at that. States that have a high population density tend to have high uh, COVID-19 death rates uh, and infections. And that makes sense because that's just people closer together, right? More people, mm-hmm. more chance to spread the disease. Right. Um, but these states... Uh, with a low population density, are getting a much higher infection rate again. And I'm suspecting it might be because those people are working in an agricultural environment where they're breathing glyphosate and causing, disrupting their immune system so that they can't fight off the virus. Interesting. It just took it a long time to arrive because it's a low-density state without much interaction with the rest of the world. You know, it mm-hmm. took a long time for the virus to catch hold, but once it did, it really took off. And uh, actually, Iowa is very interesting in that respect, because Iowa is a huge leader in the biofuel industry, probably, possibly the number one state, I'm not sure, but very big in biofuels. And um, Iowa's universities, you know, it has the University of Iowa and Iowa State. Mm-hmm. And both of those universities have had really big problems with COVID infection rates skyrocketing in the past once school started, you know, mm-hmm. whether that's also connected to those two universities, both do research in biofuel development. That's part of their agenda of their program. Mm-hmm. So it's just very interesting to me that, um, you know, you have there's a whole bunch of anecdotal data and uh, you need a more systematic study, which hasn't been done. But I think it's really interesting, especially also because the um, you know, there's these risk factors that um, cause increased risk of dying from COVID, such as obesity and diabetes right. and high blood pressure. All of those risk factors are um, are conditions that are going up dramatically in step with the rise, exactly in step with the rise in glyphosate usage on core crops. Hmm. You know, Nancy Swanson did a big study, and she and I did some collaborate on some of the data. We produced all these curves that show incredibly good match between the rise in glyphosate usage and the um, rise in those diseases. Mm-hmm. And so a risk factor like obesity could be a symptom of glyphosate poisoning because I think glyphosate causes obesity. Well, that's interesting because, you know, I've I've talked to so many people over the years who they say, you know, they say I I lost the weight and then I put it back on plus or yes, or honestly, I don't eat much. You know, I'm careful mm-hmm. about what I eat. I'm exercising and I just can't lose weight. It's, you know, right. it's just not happening. I think it's completely unfair to blame them. I really think yeah. that, and it depends on your genetics. You know, some people actually, I think, get too thin because of glyphosate because they wreck their gut to the point where they can't eat, you know, mm. and other people, they actually, and it actually does tie to the gut microbiome because they've even shown that 
you can produce obesity in, in rats by giving them a microbiome that you took from an obese person. I think they've done those sorts of experiments where they've shown that the, the microbiome is causing obesity. But the fact is the real underlying cause, of course, is the disruption of the microbiome by the glyphosate. And furthermore, I think because it disrupts the fat metabolism, that's what I'm seeing in my studies. Mm. Glyphosate interferes with your, your mitochondria's ability to process fats. And so your body ends up storing fat, and it actually probably becomes um, keen on storing fat as a protective device because it kind of recognizes that there's a problem. We have to make sure that there's plenty of nutrition available because your body's in a sense starving because your mitochondria can't. It, it gives you signals as if you're starving because your mitochondria can't process the fats to turn them into energy. Uh-huh. Wow. There is just, I mean, I, it blows my mind that nobody's actually in the lab studying this, that, I mean, it just, wow, it just seems so important. I know. I wish that, I mean, they are actually, I will say that there have been increasing numbers of papers uh, showing up recently in the last couple of years, um, looking at glyphosate toxicity. I think before that, uh, toxicologists kind of assumed that Monsanto was right, that this chemical is really safe, and it's already been shown that it's safe, it's already approved, so you know we're done with that one. It's fine, and we don't have to worry about it. But I think it was after some evidence started emerging that people were getting sick from, and it became very clear that they became aware they needed to study it, even though it had been approved. Mm-hmm. And the lawsuits? I know, those lawsuits are amazing. And I, I was just so thrilled when that first one, I just could not believe it. I was just ecstatic when I heard about that award that I was know. amazing. I know. I mean, for years, I would get emails from, you know, all of these different organizations talking about GMOs. And I look at these and I go, oh, you guys, it's not the GMOs, it's the glyphosate. God, what's wrong with everybody? I, know. I mean, I don't know why I figured it out. I, I can't even, I can't remember, but... That was really something that struck me was that all this, you know, fighting the GMOs, which was really missing the boat. I mean, yeah. it's really because the GMOs are allowing the toxic chemicals, both the glyphosate and, of course, the uh, insecticides that they build into the GMO. Mm-hmm. They make the plant able to produce mm-hmm. a toxic uh, metabolite, you know, that can't be good. Right. <laughs> if you're eating a food that can produce this, I, I just would want to be eating that food, you know. <laughs> I know, but it took so long for people to start to realize that, that, uh, you know, the, the correlation between glyphosate and GMOs and that, that it, yeah. an, a, a plant doesn't have to be genetically modified to be sprayed with glyphosate. Exactly. That's where people think I'm eating non-GMO. It's safe. And that's I know. not true at all because some of the highest levels are found in non-GMO products. I know. Yeah, that's really, uh, I think that's really unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, uh, for a long time, I felt like I was just beating my head against a wall. But, you know, and I'd go into health food stores and you know, places that I thought should know, and I'd start talking to them about glyphosate, and they had no clue. No clue. Yeah, I know. It's, I mean, I have to admit that I didn't even know the word glyphosate until about 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I happened to be at, you know, Don Huber gave this two-hour presentation that was amazing 12 years ago, and that's when I, I just happened to be there, and I'm thinking glyphosate, huh? I wonder what that is. I mean, really, I didn't know. I'm embarrassed to admit that now. It almost seems impossible for me to imagine because it's so much on my mind all the time now, you know? Yeah, well, I, I can't remember. I'm listening to so many things these days. Actually, it might have been, I thought it was the Parasympathetic Summit that I just listened to. Um mm-hmm. Because I know the guy that was talking, this one, um, 
he talked about fulvic acid, humic acid, as mm-hmm, being yeah. very effective in pulling glyphosate out of the cells, out of the body. And right, he talked about, yeah, and he talked about Don Huber, and he said that that Don Huber, he mentioned you. Oh, you got a you, ah, you got okay. a shout out, um, <laughs> and that you know that he was the one who kind of originally turned you on to looking into glyphosate. So it was either that or it was a beautiful talk between uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., my new hero, and uh, Jeremy, shoot, what's his last name? Hammond? Hammond, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it it was either one of those two, but they had talked about Don Huber was uh, the person who who you had heard uh, talk about. He's he's so amazing, and he's still active. I think he's 81 years old, maybe 82 years old. He's very active. Good for him. Still fighting glyphosate. Still fighting the good fight. (laughs) I know. He's he's really great. Yeah, and of course, uh, R. Kennedy Jr. is just fantastic. I so much appreciate the work he's doing, and he was involved with those lawsuits that... um, several lawsuits that won uh, one against Monsanto on non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, glyphosate and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, since we're talking about him, I highly recommend that everyone look at some of his YouTube videos, some of his, his interviews. There's something about him that is so authentic. and He's really inspiring. He's he just is. really great. He yes. is. And, you know, he's, he's talking about, like, with all of the, the polarity now that, and, and all that's going on in the world and, you know, this, the idea of possibly forced vaccines, which is bullshit in my mind, but uh, we, we'll, we'll get into that later. But, you know, that it's, this isn't in the states. This isn't about Republican versus Democrat. This is about Digital technology taking over and the mega corporations taking over. And um, I, I don't know. I just I feel like he's he's just got such a good head on his shoulders. He's got so much knowledge. And and um, even in this last thing that I listened to, he said they had gotten some information. They were going to publish it. And he said, wait, we don't know yet if that's true. And whoever does their research did their research and said, no, don't don't say anything yet. It's, it mm-hmm. hasn't been proven. So I just think he's really an honest, authentic, uh, right. Beacon of light, he, you know, he's very this. knowledgeable he, actually mm. in the science and he's very careful not to talk about things that he doesn't know for sure. He's very careful. He's right. very trustworthy and he's so, um, inspirational and poetic. I mean, he's just such a good states statesman, you know, he, he really, he really sees the larger picture, and he's and he's very worried about it, and he should be. I, I agree with him mm-hmm. completely. Mm-hmm. One thing I, I was listening to, uh, which I was just telling you about before we started recording, he he said that he wishes everyone would read Naomi Klein's book, Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. And I've been listening to it on Audible, and she does a beautiful job. She, it's well-researched. It's well-written. A beautiful job of laying out like kind of how we've gotten to where we are today. I can't listen to it at night anymore before I go to sleep because I find I'm staying up too late because I'm not falling. <laughs> I'm not falling asleep because I find <laughs> it's, it's so interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so well, I'm going to definitely get that book. I want to read it. I, you gave me that tip just a little while ago, and it sounds really exciting. So it's really quite, I, I've become more and more aware of this much larger picture of right. what's going on with the, you know, with the political system and right. the, all the, all the stuff. It's just really quite frightening. And I, I really, um, 
sort of see clearly now how there's a, an agenda of instilling fear in the population in order to get people to behave in a way that they're controlled, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. using fear as a technique for controlling people, yeah. which I think is very, very disturbing, taking advantage of a, of a situation like COVID to, um, to, to, to continue a political agenda that, and to move it towards a direction that is not good mm-hmm. for the population. Right. Yeah, and in this book, she talks about how this this whole idea of taking uh, advantage of disasters or creating them through usually through war or you know trying to topple right. the government, and then and then taking advantage of that and how that was done. And she's it's very detailed, and she goes into uh, quite a few countries. Though actually, right now I'm listening to the section on Russia in Yeltsin. And uh-huh. and yeah. uh, the creation of all the billionaire oligarchs. What did she say in this one year? I forget what it was. Either there were no millionaires in Russia, or there were three. But by the end of that year, there were eighteen billionaires. Uh huh. Wow. And That's and how amazing. yeah, and how that all came about, and um, it's it's all related. It's it's yeah. Really like interesting. That. Yeah. I mean, this topic is you can't have blinders on, and I think. Right. I I, want to say to everybody, because I know people, I'm sure, you know, I've been hearing a lot of things for years and years and years, and you just don't want to believe it. I mean, it just seems too freaking. Exactly. That's what happened to me, too. I didn't even just blank it out, blank it out. No, that can't be true. It can't be that bad. It seems too (laughs) crazy. They can't be that evil. I always felt it just accidentally it wasn't evil, you know. It was was naivety and lack of knowledge and... Mm-hmm. which I think to some extent is true. And I think it's really interesting with these chemicals when you look at DDT, you know, and the history mm-hmm. of it, because when it first came around and it was really heralded as a wonderful, wonderful solution to things like malaria, you know, they were just spraying it everywhere to kill the insects, to protect from God. various infectious diseases and to, and for the crops. And they just thought there was no downside with DDT, you know, and they practically killed off all I think glyphosate is very parallel to DDT. And Mm -hmm. so I look at the history of DDT and how awful. And and again, it took time for people to finally realize that DDT was doing this. You know, they thought this is so wonderful. We can control malaria. We can kill all the mosquitoes. You know, what's not to like about killing mosquitoes? That's true. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) and then they paid a huge price, but it took time for that to happen. And then it took, you know, an awareness to develop in the population before they could then finally regulate DDT and ban it and get rid of it. And they're going to have to go through the same thing with glyphosate. It's going to be DDT all over again. Hopefully it won't be too. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been 45 years. It's amazing to me that it's gone this long without us noticing what's happening. Wow. 45 years. So it's been 45 years since I had my first organic garden. Interesting. Well, because I remember using a little spray bottle of Roundup because it said it was safe for organic gardens. You know, and luckily I didn't use much, but, you know, a little spray bottle here and there, you know. Um, But I trusted what it said on there. You know, that's silly, terrible. Isn't it? I know. You know, I had an idea about influenza. So I'm wondering if, now, if people, I, I, I don't know if you have a timeline of like when it, it was started to be used more in uh, fuels. But I just had this thought that I wonder if things like uh, seasonal influenza and colds increased with the in areas where the use of, of biofuels for home heating. Hmm. 
That's a possibility, I guess. I mean, I think glyphosate has caused us to be more sensitive to influenza. I think it's kind of ironic. You know, it used to be that I remember not too long ago where you didn't think of getting a flu shot unless you were over 65 years old. Mm-hmm. Nobody under 65 got a flu shot, you know, not that long ago. Right. Right. And now it's pretty much, now they've mandated flu shots. It really makes me very upset uh, in Massachusetts for the children oh, to go to you're school. You're kidding. It's oh terrible. God. It's so crazy because actually the flu shot seems to be, I mean, that just. Um, yeah, let's go into that. Yeah, well, so, you know, they, their claim is that you need to protect people from the flu because if you get the flu and you have the COVID at the same time, that could be really bad. You know, this whole idea of trying to reduce the whatever else, what other infectious diseases you might be picking up. That's assuming that the flu shot actually does something good. Now, I don't personally think it does. I think that it's interesting that today we have so much higher percentage of the population getting the flu shot every year, and yet the flu is just as bad as ever. It's not like it's going away. You would think if all these people are getting vaccines that the flu should go away, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yes. (laughs) It's not happening. So at the population level, it's not working, which makes you wonder whether it's working at the individual level, wouldn't you think, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. And um, well, so but there's a paper that was published recently about looking at flu vaccine and COVID-19. It was very interesting because they looked at countries and the um, the rate of, uh, of flu vaccination for the elderly. So they were looking specifically at people over 65 because those are the ones that are dying from it for the most part. Right. And the percentage of people that were getting the flu vaccine in that country versus the mortality rate, you know, per 100,000 population from COVID-19. And the amazing thing is that there's a lower left corner, which is, so the graph is, you know, plotting COVID-19 death rate versus um, flu vaccine uptake, percentage of the population that's getting it, over 65, um, plotted on a, on a XY axis with um, each dot being a country. Okay. And what you see is there's a, there's a whole bunch of countries in the lower left corner. They have low coverage, less than 20% of the population getting the flu vi- vi- vaccine and very low death rate from COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Both low flu vaccine and low death rate from COVID-19, all crowded in this left corner, mm-hmm. which certainly says that not getting, it looks like not getting the flu vaccine would be a good idea to protect you from COVID-19. When you go up, up, the, up to the higher levels, like the, the countries that have like 90%, you know, much higher coverage of flu vaccine, you get a huge scatter. So there are countries that have very high coverage of the flu vaccine and very low COVID-19 death rate, but there's a huge pile of countries that all the ones that have really high death rate from COVID-19 all have also really high coverage of flu vaccine. So it looks like a definitely a positive correlation mm-hmm. with some enormous scatter on the right-hand side. And I suspect that certainly I don't think the flu vaccine is helping you against COVID, but I think that the countries that have a high vaccination rate are also the countries typically that have high glyphosate, high biofuels, all those other things that are risk factors. Got it. And that's the same thing with the, uh, with the um, uh, air pollution, because these countries that have really bad air pollution, but don't use a lot of glyphosate and don't have any biofuels, those countries have very low death rates from COVID-19 consistently. The, all the countries that have the worst uh, air pollution have, the, have low death rates from COVID-19 which is really, really interesting to me, you know, mm-hmm. but it's because their, their, um, their in, uh, air pollution is not contaminated with glyphosate. I think it's the glyphosate factor in the air pollution that's making it much more toxic, mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. making it much more damaging to the lungs, causing this uh, inability to fight off the virus. Interesting. Wow. 
Um, I was listening to, I can't think of her name now, but she's a Chinese woman who had been working in the Wuhan laboratory. She was a, a research scientist who's come to the States, escaped to the States, and she's kind of a whistleblower. And she was saying that the particle, um, I mean, I'm even, you know, my husband's really into uh, Beauchamp versus Pasteur, oh yes, you know, and whether Pasteur, right, right and, and, and whether even and Pasteur, yeah, right. whether even viruses exist, whether they're exosomes right. or that's um, such an interesting topic. I, 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 um, you know, of course, I got exposed to that topic from Sally Fallon. You know, Sally yep, Fallon yep. and Tom Cowan; those two wrote a book recently. Oh, um, the uh, Contagion Myth, I think it's called the Contagion Myth. I just read it; it's quite fascinating, and a lot of what they say is very. Uh, thought-provoking, and I think true, I wouldn't go so far as to say viruses don't exist, but I do think they are almost like an outgrowth of the exosome system, and that's something that's really, really fascinated me. I started reading a bunch of papers on exosomes after I read, after I heard about her work and, and their theory, because they are very, very much like exosomes. Well, can you explain a little bit for people who don't know anything about this, because I find this interesting you and I are often very much on the same page because that's been my perspective that it's not a one or the other, that, that right. there's, there's, there's some, it's a continuum. Yeah. There's some middle ground here that we're, we're that we're not seeing. And maybe you could explain what, what your thoughts are on that. Cause I think it's important. When cells are under stress, they actually ditch their lysosomes. They throw them out into the community as exosomes. So these, so they have these, um, Endosomes, lysosomes, these are all term, terminology in biology, but these are like little particles with a lipid membrane. Okay. They're like little lip, little fat, fatty droplets okay. with stuff inside them, with things inside them. It's really fascinating. And, uh, and the cells actually ship out a whole bunch of things that were inside of them. They ship them out and just throw them out to other cells to say, hey, take this. I don't need it. Or I'm dying. I can't, you know, use these. So why don't you have them? That's the way I look at it, you know, that they're actually rescuing things inside them that might be of use to other cells, package, packaging them up inside these exosomes and shipping them out and saying, here, take it, you know, I can't use this, either because I'm dying or because, you know, I, I need to change my policy or something, but they, they ditch these. I can't digest. So, for example, if you have an endosome that can't be turned into a lysosome because you can't make it acidic enough, then maybe you just ship it out. You know, somebody else can deal with it. Okay. I think that the cells are actually shedding material that's inside them that's packaged up inside these little particles and that that's a way for the cells to share stuff you know it's kind of like little pellets of food oh. that they're sharing with their neighbors okay and and some of those actually contain what looks exactly like a virus they have rna you know viruses are basically they have the they have an well these rna viruses which covid 19 sars cov 2 is an rna virus Okay. And the RNA contains the information to make the proteins that the, that the virus needs. Okay. I think the distinction between an exosome and a virus to me is that a virus actually has the machinery to reproduce itself. That it, it can make, with that RNA, it can make proteins and it can use those proteins to make more viruses. Uh -huh. So it knows how to multiply. Whereas okay. the exosome, if, it's, if it doesn't know how to multiply, it's not a virus, it's an exosome. That would be my distinction between the two. Okay. You know, but the exosomes also contain RNA, so that's quite interesting. You know, so um, I suspect that when a cell gets under sufficient stress, then you need the viruses um, 
a sort of an exosome on steroids, if you will, you know, a super exosome, because it can make more. And if the cell needs more, it can't clear the virus. The virus will make more. And now there's more of this food to share. I think the virus is kind of like little food pellets that the cells are sharing um, because they need the contents that the virus is giving them. Or they need what virus is going to trigger to help to fix their problems. I mean, this is a totally wild way to look at viruses, but that's what I'm seeing actually with COVID-19. It's really fascinating. The virus, um, and there's all these papers that talk about the you know, response to the virus that occurs when mm-hmm. somebody has an intense reaction, mm-hmm. everything that goes on. So I've been studying that, and it's extremely fascinating because, and it gets into a whole other topic called uh, about deuterium. And I don't know, have, did we talk about deuterium at no, all? No, we haven't past? talked about deuterium yet. So that would be a good thing. That's key. Deuterium is key. So what is I deuterium? Think. Deuterium is heavy hydrogen. Hydrogen is the smallest atom. It's the one on the upper left corner of the periodic chart, periodic table. One proton, one electron. And deuterium is heavy hydrogen. It has one proton, one electron, and one neutron. So it's twice as heavy as hydrogen. Um, it's it's present in seawater at 155 parts per million. So it's all over the world. I mean, you can't avoid deuterium. It's certainly part of nature. Um, but the body actually uh, makes, just like iron and manganese and magnesium and all those metals that are so important and but also can be toxic, yeah. the same thing with deuterium. It, it, the body has learned how to use deuterium for good purpose, but also it knows, the body knows that it can't, the mitochondria won't work properly if they have too much deuterium. Okay. And so the, the body needs to basically um, separate out the deuterium. So they have, they need more deuterium for certain purposes and less deuterium for other purposes. So they're able to fractionate it out. And they have these special enzymes that do that. And those enzymes are specifically um, designed to be susceptible to glyphosate poisoning, basically. It's really, really fascinating. The enzymes that are able to select for hydrogen over deuterium, Mm -hmm. most of them have what I call a glyphosate susceptibility motif, that they have a certain sequence of amino acids that makes them vulnerable to glyphosate substitution in the protein. Is that the glycine? Yeah, that's the glycine problem, but it's more than glycine because it's glycine plus um, basically a a situation where it binds phosphate. So proteins that bind phosphate um, are especially susceptible. They bind phosphate at a place where glycine is always present. And that glycine is getting substituted by glyphosate because glyphosate can put its methylphosphonate piece into the place where the phosphate is supposed to go. So it's all it's complicated stuff. It's mm-hmm. complicated biology. Yeah, we all need a, a chem degree, I think. <laughs> I know. It makes a lot of sense to me. And if glyphosate is messing up those proteins, it is messing up deuterium big time. This is what I'm seeing. And we have all kinds of diseases that are associated with mitochondrial dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And um, that mitochondrial dysfunction, I believe, is caused by glyphosate. And there's many chemicals that disrupt the mitochondria. We know that. And glyphosate is one of them. We know that, too, because they've done studies where they've shown that glyphosate hits hard in the mitochondria. And so when your immune cells have destroyed their mitochondria because of exposure to toxic chemicals, they can't fight off the virus. But in fact, the virus can help them to fix their mitochondria. That's the really wild part. Oh, it can help them to fix it. How so? And and it does it through this amazing process that is, involves um, giving the mitochondria deuterium-depleted water. So basically, um, the virus kicks off this big 
reaction cascade. Um, first of all, the virus picks up fatty acids from the membrane of the cell when it leaves the cell. So okay. it becomes an exosome, right? It's like an exosome. And exosome has a fatty membrane around it. It has a protein coat with a fatty membrane around it. And that fatty membrane actually, if it, so the immune cells respond by, by uh, inflammation. And the inflammation releases um, toxic molecules that cause those fatty acids in the membrane to get modified. And they get modified into signaling molecules that start this entire cascade that causes this big mess to happen where the, um, the lungs fill up with water and they make a lot of um, a, a molecule called hyaluronic acid, which causes the water to become gelled. Mm -hmm. And so your lungs fill up with gelled water in their alveoli so you can't breathe. You feel like you're drowning. That's a classic reaction to severe COVID infection. Mm -hmm. You feel like you're drowning because your lungs are filling with water and that water is gelled water, and it's gelled because of the hyaluronic acid, which is produced in response to the oxidizing of those fatty acids in the membrane of the virus. So it's really complicated, but it's so cool what the biology does. And what it's trying to do is to produce high-quality deuterium-depleted water uh, in, the, in the lungs. It traps deuterium in the gel and leaves behind fluid water that's deuterium-depleted, and the enzymes that modify those fatty acids actually steal from them hydrogen to make water out of oxygen. Mm -hmm. And that water is going to be severely deuterium depleted because those enzymes are incredible at being able to select for uh, hydrogen over deuterium. So it produces, through two techniques, both enzymes that make deuterium de depleted water and enzymes that trap, that make gel that traps deuterium combination of that is to produce really beautiful water and the macrophages can actually literally drink that water and fix their mitochondria so that they can attack the virus because they can't attack the virus if they don't have enough energy and they don't have enough energy if their mitochondria are broken and so this whole process allows them to repair their mitochondria and then allows them to clear the virus and if all goes well um the virus gets cleared and you get well. And not only do you get well, but your macrophages, your, your immune cells are stronger than they were before. So the virus is actually trying to repair your immune system. And at the same time, allowing it, training it so that it can actually kill the virus. The virus is trying to get rid of itself, you know, by providing to the immune cells what they need to be able to remove the virus. So the virus is really like a food pellet. I think of it as a food pellet. Uh -huh. Um, to, wow. pr to allow the immune cells to regain their health um, so that they can clear the virus. But the virus is actually providing something useful to them. Oh, and it's just because you're so damaged by glyphosate. In fact, the enzymes that the virus is uh, triggering that would help you solve the problem also get busted by glyphosate. So you're, you're, your whole system is just not working correctly. And so the strategy the virus has in mind doesn't work because the glyphosate is getting in the way. But it's sort of a last-ditch effort to fix the mitochondria because there's, you're so sick. And you're sick because your mitochondria are broken. Mm -hmm. So the virus is helping you to fix them. So I think that if people get the disease and recover from it, they're going to have a stronger immune system when they're done. Wow. Interesting. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I just, it's, I've, I'm focusing so hard. <laughs> to... It's really hard stuff, and I haven't, of course, explained it well enough at all. I've tried to write it up, actually. I'm hoping to do a book on this topic, but uh, 
Um, that'll be really a challenge. <laughs> it's such fascinating stuff, and I've just been reading a tremendous amount of literature to figure it all out. It's so interesting. Wow. But I think that deuterium is really crucial, and I think that deuterium is something that's actually quite... Um, people in uh, Eastern Europe, like Hungary and Ukraine and Russia, there's researchers there that are studying deuterium, but over here, almost nobody among the professionals has any um, knowledge of deuterium or interest in deuterium. They're not aware that it's a problem. Wow. in the United States and in the West in general. It's quite interesting. Wow. Uh, wow. <laughs> How many <laughs> times could I say, wow? I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated by, well, before we get into, uh, oh, I know, one thing I wanted to, oh, that's right, I got sidetracked. Oh, see, it's my senior moments. So one of the things that this, this Chinese research scientist who was at the Wuhan lab said was that that the oh that's right because we had, then I got on to is it a virus or not <laughs> okay that's, that's how we got out oh my goodness one can wow. wander off <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh, give me a moment here um, the lingering symptoms that many people have that keep going on and on and that are just they're you know so varied she was saying that. I can't remember it's that it's designed to attack a certain it's a ACE or something or oh, ACE2 ACE2 yeah and yeah, and that that's in, yeah. and that's in every cell right well, well lots of cells have it not necessarily every cell okay. but the but the vasculature has it that's one thing really interesting because I think the virus is entering the um the, the the endothelial cells that line the, the blood vessels okay. and causing them to react to the virus. And that's where you get this incredible cascade that is basically like sepsis. I mean, you get a complete meltdown of the blood and you get um, multiple organ failure because of all these blood clots. I mean, it's just a complete disaster that happens in the end game from some, for many people, those mm -hmm. who die. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a continuation of that process of trying to fix the mitochondria gone completely haywire because glyphosate's messing up the enzymes that are trying to help to do it. Oh. It just totally backfires. So there's actually an enzyme called heme oxygenase that it gets upregulated in response to the inflammation. So the entire vasculature gets inflamed because the virus has kind of gone out of the lungs. Like the lungs wasn't good enough to solve the problem. So you get into the vasculature and now you're triggering this cascade all over the body um, to produce this heme oxygenase, which breaks down hemoglobin. But in breaking down hemoglobin, it produces deuterium-depleted water. So it's trying to continue that process of providing deuterium-depleted water to the tissues and to the, to the immune cells. Um, but the heme oxygenase, it has a glycine residue that if that gets busted by glyphosate, it'll turn it into a rogue version of itself that does the exact opposite of what it's supposed to do. So it'll increase the inflammatory response. It releases very toxic form of iron and just makes you go completely downhill. So I think that, again, glyphosate is messing up the enzymes that are involved in the process of trying to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. And then I think when people recover and continue to have issues, I think mm -hmm. it's because the body really got into a very terrified state in which it realized that it's got a very big problem and it starts to raid the tissues in order to fix the, the uh, mitochondria in the immune cells. It starts to, it's basically an autoimmune disease that comes about because the virus couldn't fix the problem. It's an awareness on the part of the body that things are really bad and we need to steal stuff from the tissues in order to fix the immune cells so that we can maintain a healthy immune system because that's just crucial for survival. 
So it becomes, it, so what you're saying is that it becomes an autoimmune issue. Yes, I think so. Uh-huh. Okay. That it's really interesting, funny. actually, with respect to the, uh, uh, the brain and the um, myelin sheath. I've been really looking at the myelin sheath, and I only learned recently that the myelin sheath actually has um, in it the, these enzymes called ATPase, which is the enzyme that makes ATP. Okay. They, the myelin sheath actually has apparently lots of copies of ATPase, that enzyme. And that's the enzyme that gets busted by deuterium. And so I think the macrophages, the immune cells, are going in and stealing the ATPase from the uh, myelin sheath in order to fix their mitochondria. So I think it's all about fixing the mitochondria of the immune cells, which is sort of um, priority one for the body to stay healthy. So you sacrifice other tissues in order to mm-hmm. um, restore immune function. And it has to do with uh, the mitochondria and it has to do with deuterium. Wow. So, because I was wondering if, if because, um, if the ACE2 receptor, if it had anything to do with why there's such, uh, maybe not why, but if it's a, a contributing factor, that's what I want to say, mm-hmm. to yes. why there is such a variety of symptoms. Well, yes. I mean, the ACE2 receptor is quite interesting. And in fact, what uh, there was a really wonderful paper on COVID-19 that talked about um, a theory that I thought was really very um, right on, and that involved the ACE2 receptor. And apparently the virus um, causes, because of the ACE2 situation, you end up releasing something called bradykinin. And bradykinin is what triggers that whole response that I was talking about. After the blood pressure drops and the blood, the immune cells actually escape into the lung tissues and the water in the blood actually escapes so the blood becomes leaky. The blood pressure drops, the blood becomes leaky, the water goes into the lungs. And then, as I said, this extreme upregulation of hyaluronic acid, all of that is happening in response to bradykinin. And the bradykinin is getting increased by a huge amount because of this ACE2, the effect of uh, the virus on the ACE2 receptor. It's really fascinating stuff. And so it's a great paper that I read um, about that topic. And it just totally made sense in the context of the theories I was building about deuterium. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, okay. Let's see. Two topics I wanted to briefly cover before I ask you, like, what can we do to protect our mitochondria or to rebuild it? Masks and vaccines. Would you like to weigh in on your thoughts? on? (laughs) (laughs) I really am annoyed by the masks. I I, I feel, um, I think they may. Makes two of us. Yeah. I mean, they may be helping. Uh, There's controversy on whether they help or not. It doesn't look to me like they're doing a whole lot of good. Right. Um, I find them extremely annoying personally Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. sort of overreached by the government. And what frustrates me the most is that they're not talking about the obvious things, in my opinion, in terms of eating a healthy diet, eating an organic diet, going out in the sunlight, getting, make sure you have plenty of uh, minerals, you know, because like zinc is so important and you have these vitamins, uh, vitamin D, of course, and then vitamin K2, which is like fermented foods, um, vitamin C. I mean, all of those things, the B vitamins, Mm -hmm. they're all really, really important. I think if you could just keep your vitamins and minerals uh, at good levels and stay away from the poisons, you'd be fine. Mm -hmm. And that's what the government should be telling us to do. They should not be telling us to wear a mask and get a vaccine, you know. I it's just, you know, I, I mean, I hardly ever have had a mask on. I just refuse. But if there's something I really want to do, like get my hair done, 
you know, I'll put one on, but when I do, I put it down at the bottom of my nose and I open it up so I can breathe. But just experimenting, you know, I put one on and like sealed it up and I feel like I'm just breathing this awful moist, uh, I want fresh air. And I saw yesterday, I saw some, oh my God, I saw somebody walking outside, like we're out in the woods for God's sakes. And this woman is walking outside in the woods, not in town or anything just by herself. And she's got her mask on. Right, and I wanted I to roll my window down and go, don't you want some fresh air? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, in Massachusetts, they require it. And my, my kids play tennis. And now they have to go to New Hampshire to play tennis because they refuse to play tennis with face masks on. Can you imagine? Playing I think that's dangerous. You're not getting enough oxygen. I see these people in their cars with their windows rolled up and their masks on. And I'm I like, know. <laughs> what? I I mean, I don't yeah, know. It's you know, really interesting how you have place. so many different reactions to the mask because there are people who are just terrified that if I take the mask off, I'm going to catch the disease or they're really angry at the person in front of them who isn't wearing a mask, you know. And then you have people like you and I me know. who think the whole thing is really quite silly and misguided, really misguided because it just really, really frustrates me that they're not saying anything about the real problem. Why does the United States have such a mess with COVID-19 compared to other countries? And, you know, Nigeria, which right. is like very poor, very big crowding in the cities, um, high black population. The blacks have a, a greater risk. You know, in the U.S., they have twice the risk of dying compared to the whites. And they have all that pollution, all that air pollution. I mean, they have everything going against them in Nigeria. And for every one person who dies in, in Nigeria, 100 people die in the United States, even normalized by population. Wow. That's crazy. They're much, much worse than Nigeria. It doesn't make any sense. We should be asking, why is that? And you look at Taiwan. Taiwan has had seven deaths total. From the beginning. Wow. You know, so why is Taiwan doing so well? We should be asking those questions. We should be looking at those countries and, and trying to understand what's different between them and us and then fix those things. Don't worry about the mass of the vaccines. Worry about the things that are causing us to be so susceptible. And that's because we right. have all these toxic chemicals. And I think especially glyphosate. Well, and I was reading that, you know, billions of dollars are going into developing vaccines and the money's coming from my understanding, most of it's coming from uh, the military and the CIA, mm-hmm. but hardly any money is going into, you know, researching, you know, what kinds of things can we do to right. to at least help people who get it, you know, to reduce. Which I think is and, huge. And I think the whole way we treat it, too, yeah. of course, is like with pharma, you know, and that's not correct either. Mm-hmm. And I think there's been a lot of success. I have friends who are naturopaths who have been very successful in treating people with natural solutions you know and zinc is a big one mm-hmm. yep and uh it, you know uh, just uh vitamin c you know simple things mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah vitamin d vitamin c vitamin k2 vitamin k2 is quite interesting that's one, another one i've been looking at because that's the that's present in um in uh, fermented foods you know and the countries that have fermented foods okay seem to have lower risk okay. um Looking at uh, Taiwan, you know, has this stinky tofu, and Japan, Japan has um, yeah, yep. um, nacho, and then South Korea has the uh, mm-hmm. kimchi and kombucha, and they all have really much lower rates of COVID nineteen than we do. Now, whether that's the reason, I don't know, but there are papers that show that K two deficiency is a risk factor for COVID nineteen. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I take um, five drops of a it's a liquid D three K two. Yeah, every yes. every morning. Those two um, go together. And and of course K two can cause all these blood problems, you know, K two deficiency. So it makes sense. Mm-hmm. 
interesting. What do you think about this whole vaccine? I'm quite worried about it, actually, because a messenger RNA vaccine is a brand new category of vaccine that we've never seen before. So we're doing a giant experiment on a massive scale for an experimental vaccine that's brand new with insufficient uh, time to really test what are the long-term consequences of this thing. And I would expect that that messenger RNA would be very allergenic, that it would cause autoimmune disease would be my expectation, that it's going to increase already. Our our very high rates of autoimmune disease are going to get even worse, I I predict, uh, with that vaccine. Wow. Interesting. It is a very interesting mm. technology because mm. they feed you the um, the messenger RNA for the protein for the the coat protein that is the uh, that causes the uh, antibodies to be produced and then the you get you get the messenger RNA and then your body your cells actually make that protein from that RNA guide and then once they make the protein they react to it and have the um, immune cells produce the antibodies that is the argument for why it would protect you. And of course, we don't know how long it would protect you. The coronaviruses have always been known to mutate very quickly. Right. I mean, they're always mutating. And that includes influenza. And that's why a lot of I times... I know. It's always the wrong one, right? When they do the influenza, it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. they Because they, they're, they're trying to take, an I guess we'd say, an mm-hmm. educated guess as to what form the influenza is going to take for the next season. And then they try to create a vaccine. For yeah. It, I but... often think that they, the vaccine successfully kills off the ones that they are immunizing against, leaving the other ones a, a field day to be able to just completely um, overtake, you know, the um, population because they, their competition got, uh, pro- you were protected from their competition, but not from them because the, the virus, the vaccine is very, very specific. Mm. That's a very big difference between the vaccination idea for immunity versus general immunity that you would get if you actually caught the disease. So when you catch the flu, your body actually develops an, um, resistance to flu of all sorts and even probably other uh, viruses as well. Very broad resistance as a consequence of catching the flu. But when you get the vaccine, it's very specific for the species that are in the vaccine. I think the vaccines weaken your general immunity. Interesting. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad I asked you about this. Also, oh shoot, I try to jot things down when you're talking when I've got an idea because the, I know. it kind of goes through my brain and I'm like, where to go? I wanted to say and I can't remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> so because the viruses are always mutating and you're saying that if you were to get the, you know, so many people aren't healthy, but let's say you you are pretty healthy, you know, um, and you get the flu, that you're really much better off in the long run because your body is going to build up antibodies in a more general way that will protect you from other strains and, and, and other Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what I think. And in fact, I think it does so the same way the COVID-19 virus does it by um, strengthening your immune cells, you know, providing them with a healthier mitochondria. I think I think that's a general property of the viruses that their their main goal, in a way, is to uh, help to repair the mitochondria of the immune cells. Okay, so if we have issues with our mitochondria, is there anything that you can suggest to people? Like, what can you do to help rebuild your mitochondria, to help repair your mitochondria? Well, a crucial problem with the mitochondria with respect to glyphosate and other chemicals is glutathione. Glutathione deficiency and uh, insufficient um, 
ratio of reduced to oxidized glutathione. So the reduced glutathione is what protects the mitochondria from oxidative damage. And um, glyphosate has been shown to um, deplete glutathione in the liver and to also increase the expression of an enzyme that breaks glutathione down. So it's basically causing a glutathione deficiency in the mitochondria, which is then causing the mitochondria to be very sensitive to oxidative stress. And that's what is going to mess them up. It's going to destroy them over time. So glutathione, so glutathione, it can actually take liposomal glutathione, but you can also take uh, eat sulfur-containing foods, which is what I do. I, I try very hard to eat foods that are rich in sulfur, so, like the cruciferous vegetables. In fact, we're having Brussels sprouts tonight. I love Brussels sprouts. They're a really good source of sulfur. Cabbage, uh, broccoli, cauliflower, mm-hmm. onions. Mm-hmm. Garlic is a wonderful source of sulfur, and we use tons of garlic in our cooking. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, all these uh, sulfur-containing uh, meats and uh, animal-based foods. Eggs are a fantastic source of sulfur, especially the egg yolk and um, mm. grass-fed beef and seafood, you know, uh, oysters. Oysters are actually really, really healthy, not just sulfur, but all kinds of minerals and healthy fats. Animal-based fats are really good. Actually, butter and lard are the two fats that have the least amount of deuterium. So an interesting thing about deuterium is that you can eat a high-fat diet, and that will be a low-deuterium diet, and that can help to repair your mitochondrial deuterium problem, which is quite fascinating. Interesting. Huh. Now, do you think that taking glutathione, you know, like a supplement or something, would that help at all? Or I think it probably would. I think especially liposomal. Glutathione is not ideal. You know, it's, it's hard to... to you could probably be better off to take its precursors. You know, so glycine actually is one of the components of glutathione. Glutathione has three amino acids, glutamate, glycine, and, and cysteine. And cysteine is something that people take, N-acetylcysteine or S-adenosyl methionine. Methionine and cysteine are both sulfur-containing amino acids. And there's also alpha-lipoic acid that also contains sulfur. So there are these various nutritional supplements that contain sulfur, and that can be precursors for your body to make its own glutathione, which is probably better, I think. But I do know that people, a lot of my naturopath friends uh, prescribe liposomal glutathione, which is sort of a packaged up inside like an yeah, exosome yeah. sort of, you know, <laughs> and that you can deliver it that way and get it to, to actually get to where it needs to go. Because it would just get broken down if you eat, if you take glutathione up straight, I think it'll just Got get it. broken down in your gut. So you won't really be taking, be succeeding with that. Is DSMO, that's sulfur, right? DMS- yeah, yeah, DMSO. Yes. So that's MSM. MSM, yeah. So that's another way to get sulfur, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. MSM is a very popular uh, supplement, and that's got that's, that's methylsulfonylmethane. That's quite interesting because it's got the methyl groups too, and that's another issue. Methylation right. pathways are another right. problem with uh Well, because uh, the reason I'm asking... My calves were getting ache. Like I'd wake up during the night, and my calves were start. It, this is like different mm-hmm. from my restless leg crap. My calves were feeling mm-hmm. achy, and I started using these MSM crystals in water. It's totally disgusting, but mm-hmm. you just do a little bit and then drink something. And I found it was really helping with my uh, calves aching. They weren't aching, and it wasn't waking me up. And then I remembered mm-hmm. that I had the that's DMSO, great. and that's sulfur so mm-hmm. i so now what i'm doing is when i wake up during the night my calves are aching i spritz the dsmo water combination and i rub my calves with it mm-hmm. and that that seems to that's help. very so interesting i'm hoping i'm getting more 
That makes sense. That makes sense because I think sulfur is really, really important for those muscle aches and pains. And also right. there's um, Epsom salt baths is another right. one. That's magnesium sulfate. And that's one that so I, I like. So you can get sulfur in through through the pores of your skin. Yeah. Through the skin. Absolutely. Yes. And that, that's a good way, especially if you have sulfur sensitivities in the gut, mm-hmm. which a lot of people mm-hmm. do. So sulfur is a good a way to, uh, as a precursor sulfur, for, yeah. for, for more uh, producing more glutathione. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Because the cysteine, I think, I think both the cysteine and the glycine are critical for the glutathione. And I think glyphosate's messing it up because of the glycine in part, you know, but glyphosate also messes up the whole sulfur system. So it's getting fried both ways, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I think the glutathione is a huge part of the glyphosate problem. Glyphosate, it's like all pervasive, isn't it? It, it's, Mm -hmm. it's an amazing molecule. I mean, it's just really, I've been fascinated with it and I, I can't really, stop learning learning about it because the more i read it's as i said it's been a window on life i mean i've actually appreciated glyphosate from that standpoint because it by virtue of studying the enzymes that it messes up and i can predict which ones they would be and then i can see that they're connected to all these diseases i mean it's a giant puzzle but it's coming together very very nicely and um and glyphosate helps you to figure out what these how biology works by virtue of how it's getting Mm -hmm. messed up by the glyphosate Wow. It's really interesting. And that's how I came upon the whole deuterium thing. As soon as I heard about deuterium and understood, you know, the issue with mitochondria, I immediately saw why that would be a mm-hmm. huge issue with glyphosate. Mm-hmm. So, and do you think that uh, taking a fulvic humic acid supplement then, is that a good way to help pull that out of the body? Because we want to get rid of it. I think so. I really think so, because I've really heard, heard good uh, reports from products that contain fulvic acid and humic acid. And you can just right. get those straight too. You know, I think those are, really, they're very powerful. They're these really complicated molecules that are produced by plants that um, I think by plants and they, um, they trap um, toxic chemicals and even they trap enzymes that are really sophisticated that can break them down. So that's really exciting. Um, this one person was saying that, that uh, the fulvic acid is within the humic acid and, uh, but it has to be separated out and then, put back together in order to work best. I, hmm. Do you know anything about that? or? You know, I think I heard something of that sort too, and okay. I don't quite know what to make of that. So I can't tell you what's the significance of that. That seems odd, but mm-hmm. it, but may, it might be true. But at least taking fulvic acid, humic acid supplement, however it's it's mm-hmm. produced, is, is going to be helpful to... Mm-hmm. Every, and I think you had once mm-hmm. said... Um, apple cider vinegar you thought yes apple cider vinegar and in fact we we have a salad every night and we use apple cider vinegar in our salad it's um it has acetobacter and acetobacter among among the very few species that can break glyphosate down enzymatically which is awesome so yeah i start i stopped making my salad dressings with lemon juice and i just use apple cider vinegar now Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm good any other suggestions to help people before we Obviously, sunlight. Yeah. You know, I'm a big fan mm-hmm. of sunlight. I really think that's a very simple thing to do for COVID. It's just make sure you get out in the sun, get your get your uh, vitamin D up, but also just the, all the other benefits of sun exposure are not to be ignored. I think it'll help to strengthen your immune system and help you to fight off COVID should you happen to get infected. Right. Now, for <clears throat> those of us who <laughs> don't get a lot of sun in the winter, the daylight hours <laughs> are for, you know, if you're like me and you don't get up early and the daylight hours are short and it's cloudy most of the time. I do have my full spectrum lamp right next to me here. So, I mean, I try to get out in the sun, but, you know, 
Not a yeah, lot. I actually had, I corresponded through email with someone from Canada, and I and I sort of said, well, you know, you might try full spectrum, and I was suggesting one of those lamps that they use for the um, reptiles. Oh, right, right. You know, when you have a mm-hmm. pet reptile, mm-hmm. and he and then he wrote back several like a year later. He said, you know, I took your advice, and it worked great, and my vitamin D went way up. He was really happy, so it worked for him. He was a Canadian. He used this in the mm-hmm. wintertime. Uh, a uh, and you can you can buy these things for your pet reptile and just. Uh, Use it for yourself, you know. Well, you know, I just had another idea because I, I decided I was going to um, plant. I, I've got, let's see, lettuce, spinach, and sprouts growing inside. And I've got mm-hmm. them on those little seedling heat mats because um, I've got them in kind of a cool mm-hmm. area because I thought, but they also, they don't like a lot of heat to grow. Those, all of those. Uh-huh. like, yeah. And then uh, yesterday, I just picked up my order of full spectrum daylight uh, grow light. So, but uh-huh, I, you great. know, you hang that from the ceiling and then it's got pulleys so you can raise it and lower it. And I just thought, wow, maybe having something like that above me where I'm sitting at my computer and doing all my work, maybe that right. would be a good idea. That would be great. I so, hope so. Yeah, yeah. So using a, a grow light that's, that's full mm-hmm. spectrum might also work really well. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Well, as usual, Stephanie, this has been uh, for me, I hope it is for everyone, but for me, this, <clears throat> excuse me, this has been just an eye opener. It's, I, I'm just so in awe of your brain. Keep it healthy. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I feel I'm getting up at the age where, you know, Alzheimer's is going up dramatically in our population, which has me really worried. You know, I, <laughs> I don't want to have Alzheimer's. <laughs> I think you are growing new neural pathways every day. And I, I really don't think you have to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure your brain is good and healthy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And as always, when you have some new information and, and new new thoughts about all of this, uh, I'm sure everyone would love to have you back on again. So Certainly. Not many times. Thank oh, you. Great. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you, and I appreciate your the work you do. Thank right. you. Take care. Thank you for listening, everyone, and thank you so much, Dr. Stephanie Seneff, for sharing this very thought-provoking information with us, and it's so useful right now. We really need this. There's so much conflicting information out there, and, you know, Stephanie is one person I really trust to be on the up-and-up, authentic, honest. She really knows how to put things together. Okay, the podcast website is realjanine.com. You can listen to episodes or download them from there. You can sign up for the podcast blog newsletter, which I'm kind of, you know, doing whenever I feel like it now, not bi-weekly. And also, you know, if you like YouTube, you can search Keeping It Real with Janine and you can listen on YouTube. I create video slideshows for all my conversations. Do you know someone who would find this conversation with Dr. Stephanie Seneff interesting? I would think so. So please share the love. That's how we get the word out um, is by people sharing and making this available to anyone who's interested. So that's it for today. Take care and be well, everyone.